uh, uh, Elijah Anderson. I'm the Sterling Professor of Sociology and African American Studies at Yale University. And uh, I'm, a, I'm an urban ethnographer. And I've written a number of books and studies uh, about the city uh, based in Chicago and Philadelphia. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much. It's a true honor to have you on the podcast and have a chance to discuss your remarkable work. Um, you've been working as an ethnographer and a teacher for almost half a century now, but I came across your work in college in a sociology course taught by Jim Spades, a great professor of mine, uh, who had assigned us to read The Code of the Street, one of your books, um, and which I've read I've, since then, I've, I've read a few times. And it has stayed in my memory, not just for what it described, which was of course the life and conditions and the rules uh, by which African-Americans have to live in low-income uh, inner city environments, but it's also about how you describe these conditions through these uh, beautiful uh, narratives, these stories of different characters in Germantown, which is the, uh, the case study that you used. Um, you, these stories were about uh, archetypes of uh, black inner city neighborhoods. I'm, I'm curious about lots of things concerning your work and hopefully we'll cover a few during this interview, but I'd like to start by simply discussing your storytelling. Why did you decide to use storytelling as the means to analyze the conditions of communities? Well, this is one of the ways we, uh, what we do when we do ethnography, we, we listen to what people say and we, we try to observe or watch uh, what, what they do. And we assume that uh, any community um, uh, is organized around a, a local knowledge. And this is Clifford Geertz's term, <laughs> local knowledge. And um, the idea behind this uh, is that people of any community go about meeting the exigencies of everyday life, the demands of life, uh, problems they face every day. And they solve these problems in little ways and they share the, uh, the solutions uh, that they uh, make uh, with other people, especially young people, their children and their friends and families. Now these um, understandings that they develop are then manifested uh, in uh, myths, rituals, and ultimately the social structure of the community, the patterns of everyday life. And so the ethnographer's object is to apprehend, comprehend, understand to the extent that he or she can this local knowledge and then uh, represent it in the work. And one of the best ways to represent it is through stories and storytelling. Um, the ethnographer watches what people do and listens to what they say and, and tries to get a sense of how they see themselves in this context and the story uh, I found is, is one of the best ways to, to do this, you see. Yeah. Um, in The Code of the Street, which is my favorite book, you often make what I would call relatively broad stroke observations, mentioning, for example, that uh, just a couple of examples, the street-oriented women tend to perform motherly duties sporadically, uh, or in the story of a family, eating in the Galleria, mentioning that the father of a decent family, you distinguish between decent and street, of course. So a father of a decent family uses his austere tone to command his children not to move until they come back, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and there are many other examples like this in the book, this broad uh, uh, type of observations. Um, so, have you ever been criticized about generalizing? Uh, uh, someone may interpret this as uh, you in effect creating preconceived notions about large groups of people, in some cases unfairly. Um, have you ever been criticized for this approach? Yeah, yeah people um, criticize uh, often out of ignorance. Um, yeah. But when we listen to what people say and watch what they do, we privilege their, their local knowledge and the folk observations they make. Uh, 
and even their folk concepts. And these are concepts that are meaningful to them. And in apprehending these concepts, the ethnographer tries to understand the concepts and then, then represent them. So when I talk about uh, decent and street, I'm using the terms that the people themselves use. Uh, people um, see uh, and maybe divide their community up into people who are decent and people who are street in their estimation. And, and these are orientations that people uh, know and live by. And sometimes these orientations, decent and street, are represented in the same person who then code switches depending on the situation he or she experiences. Yeah. But these categories uh, are understood in the community. Uh, the decent people are people who have mainstream <clears throat> values, uh, sometimes are upwardly mobile. They tend to be a little bit more educated. They tend to have a connection with the wider system in ways that the street element does not. The street element um, uh, in the minds of people is um, more, um, to some extent, alienated, you see, from the wider system. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, the street element is uh, economically poor. And, um, um, and the people who operate with this um, orientation uh, tend to be much more exacting in their relations with other people in terms of like, uh, not always seeing the best in people. Um, the street orientation is more hard scrabble. Mm -hmm. People have to do what they have to do to survive, you see. Yeah. And the street element also includes in terms of the quote unquote decent people, not just the street element, but the criminal element, you see. Yeah. And, um, and in this context, uh, people believe that the wider system has abdicated its responsibility to their communities. In fact, both street and decent people live in the ghetto and feel that the wider system is abdicated in terms of the economy, in terms of the police, in terms of the criminal justice system, everything. And so uh, what this means is that people feel oftentimes that they're on their own, they're on their own. So when there's trouble, when people, uh, uh, threaten you, when people rob you, when people offend you, uh, you know, uh, you don't call the authorities because you believe <clears throat> that the authorities are, have abdicated. And when you call the police, the police wow. may not come or they come too late. So you, even though you're decent, maybe you go to church, maybe you uh, work in a job, maybe trying to raise your children with the best uh, of everything, you have to deal with uh, acts of violence or crime or whatever in, in your situation uh, yourself. So you put your body in the gap. And so you let people know in no uncertain terms that you won't call the police, that you, you won't rely on the police because the police are not your friend and you'll deal with the person yourself. And so in order to stay safe in that community, you have to promise retributive violence, you see. Yeah. If you mess with me, I will hurt you. I won't call the police. I'll hurt you. And so you or, or you operate with this, even though you may be a decent person. Now, the street element, uh, it's assumed, uh, has this in mind already. And the only thing the street element understands is power. Uh, you know, you call the police. Uh, uh, police don't come. Uh, the street element assumes this and assumes that the police are racist and not interested uh, in, in maintaining uh, civility or law-abidingness in the community, that the police are out to contain the community. So both uh, decent and street people tend to operate with this view in mind, you see. That yeah. means that they have to deal with each other by, you know, uh, interaction and keeping people apart and letting people know in no uncertain terms, I'm not that person to mess with. So it sounds like a, a street orientation is like a like a like a force in the community, almost like gravity. It tends to drag the decent mm -hmm. element down to the bottom, yeah. and uh, the measure of the decent uh, person is to what extent they can resist that force. Right. right? Well, the the the, the 
I mean, basically the, the decent people, quote unquote, are under pressure and, um, and they have to be able to code switch. They have to uh, deal with the street and they have to deal with the wider society and they have to know what time it is. This is one of the things that you see uh, young boys learning at an early age and they talk about it, uh, knowing what time it is, knowing what time it is. And that means uh, knowing, to, knowing what to do uh, at, at, at the right time, how to act, how to understand the world, you see. I see. But typically, generally, the, uh, the, the decent people, so-called, are under pressure. They have to act street in order to survive in these communities sometimes, you see. Yeah. So as an, as an ethnographer, how do you identify a street-oriented person versus a, a, a decent person? Do you actually identify them? You mentioned earlier that well, the street well, I mean, and the decency are both in, in all people to different extents. Yeah, yeah, people, I say the, the decent people, quote unquote, have to sometimes act street in order to right. keep people from violating um, himself, uh, his, his daughter, his son, his wife, his mother, you know. Uh, when you call the police, the police may not come, or they may become, or they may come late. And when they do come, they, 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 they disrespect the people who call them, you see. And, yeah. and, and, and the decent people know this. They believe that there are two different systems of law, one for black people and one for white people. Mm -hmm. So they don't necessarily believe in the civil law in their community. But you decent a street, the, the, um, the, the system, they, I mean, the, 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 the law, is uh, respect for the civil law uh, is, is, is weakened by this, you see. But yeah. they understand this, and they understand that they have to get along, and they have to uh, prepare their young people to get along. And that's where they, um, that's where they put their energies, you see. Yeah. Uh, professor, in Yvette's uh, story, uh, which is a story, it's a, it's a character in, uh, in the Code of the Street, you mentioned that Yvette and her mom are criticized by their own family members for quote unquote selling out. Selling out in this case means that uh, her mom has a high school education and works as a clerical, clerical white collar job. And uh, Yvette has uh, decided to try to become a doctor. Uh, Yvette is a young woman. I believe she's around 15 years old. You then mentioned something interesting about jealousy. You say that jealousy as was shown in the case of Yvette is often an issue because it's extremely difficult for some young people existing in a sea of deprivation to suffer the advancement of uh, someone assumed to be their social equal, uh, unquote. Then in the story of a different character, his name is Tyree. You mentioned that uh, Tyree was a young man who was caught in the middle of a back and forth with a gang in the neighborhood and is now trying not to lose face. Uh, the Tyree feels under some obligation uh, to uh, punch out every, uh, uh, what is it called, ball or uh, yeah, ball. Ball, ball, right? Ball, ball. Yeah. yeah. Which means, I guess, uh, a, a member of a gang or a boy mm -hmm. uh, until he can avenge himself and regain his respect in the neighborhood. So both Yvette and Tyree are young, they're ambitious, they're decent kids from decent families and uh, they want to stay out of trouble and yet they are essentially forced to deal with incredible jealousy and vengeance instead of concentrating on their studies and aspirations and eventually help pull the community out of its troubles. This seems to be very distracting for these young people. Why does the community itself drag its own people into the gutter even though it is in its own interest not to bother them? Mm. I mean, this uh, behavior is a reaction to existential situations, you see, where people, where people deal with. Um, uh, and the assumption is that people who um, uh, make it in society um, are touched in some strange way uh, by people who want either to help them or by their own um, orientation or whatever they've been able to survive but because uh, this, the, the community is so uh, undermined and uh, desperate um, you know when the only way to achieve something is to 
conspire with the powers that be and mm -hmm. people feel that the powers that be are not on their side. And so this undermines the credibility of such a person who would uh, navigate the system successfully. And so, I mean, in the minds of people. So this is what goes on, you see. Yeah. Um, is there, are there uh, many more uh, occasions in which uh, you feel that uh, young people of great promise were, uh, their lives were compromised because of this, uh, this, this culture, because of the community itself? Yeah, well, this speaks to alienation, you see. Yeah. And, and if you go back in history, you see uh, that um, the uh, institution of slavery established the black body at the bottom of the order. And uh, of course, uh, anybody who was white was better than a black person in the minds of people who believed in the institution of slavery. In fact, Justice Taney himself says in 1857 that black people have no rights that white people are bound to respect. And he was commenting, of course, uh, about the situation of black people doing slavery. But, uh, you know, basically, uh, this was the way people tended to feel. And then, of course, we had uh, emancipation uh, during the Civil War. And then black people began to migrate to cities of the uh, north and the south, and oftentimes were told to keep on going. And they did settle in certain places on the outskirts of white settlements, you know. Yeah. And um, the fact that they did so, um, uh, this became the precursor of the, of the so-called ghetto, so to speak. But that, uh, that precursor reinforced what slavery established, and that was the Black person's lowly place at the bottom of the order in the minds of so many white people. And this, this situation um, was very powerful, really, and so many white people became deeply invested in this positionality, white over black, and it became institutionalized and passed on from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. Until today, we see the ghettos in Philadelphia, Chicago, Washington, DC, and race other cities, Baltimore, uh, basically uh, reinforcing what slavery established in the minds of the wider society. And the people living in these communities, as the wire shows, and as I show in Code of the Street, uh, I mean, uh, feel that you know, there are two different systems of law, one for blacks, one for whites, and they are often on the losing end. So there's limited respect for the civil law and limited respect from, for the wider society. So if you're black and you uh, move into that wider society, then uh, you lose credibility in the minds of many people of your community, at least in the most distressed communities. Now we can subclassify for communities. I mean, some are very distressed and alienated and other black communities are not. Mm -hmm. And the ones that are not so alienated uh, can support people uh, navigating the system, can support people who become openly mobile, that kind of thing, you know? And uh, so there's a difference here, a difference that really is a function of where people fit uh, socioeconomically uh, within the framework. The people who are deeply alienated um, have no, uh, or maybe very little respect for the civil law, but even the dominant social stratification system. And when black people navigate that system, black people can lose respect and be accused of selling out in the minds of people who are locked at the bottom of the system, you see. Yeah. Is there also a situation, like I wanna to go to your black and white space book uh, for a second. Uh, is there a case where a decent family managed to move out of, uh, of the quote unquote ghetto and into a suburban nicer neighborhood? And then they were faced with discrimination by the white, uh, white uh, neighbors. Uh, and even though they were decent people, uh, they, they were basically classified as street. And after a while, 
is there is there a situation where the discrimination of your surroundings uh, will cause you to believe uh, that, that you are something that you're not that causes people who are who are decent uh, that uh, to believe that they are street in fact just because they're black I don't know if I'm the phrasing yeah. of the question is terrible. I'm, I'm trying to yeah. say that if uh, like the, um, the stereotypes um, expressed by, by whites, I guess, uh, towards their, their, their black neighbors, uh, who may mm -hmm. be decent people, um, right. the, uh, you know, in many cases, uh, you know, these are very negative stereotypes, of course. Uh, they associate them just because they're black with the street. After a while, does that wear someone out? Do you believe that you are necessarily street just because your surroundings tell you and 90% of your surroundings are white and they have these preconceived notions, so they're probably right? Is there that uh, notion? It's a very complicated situation. And, um, and over the years, of course, we've had upper mobility by black people who were certainly a part of the caste and for that reason uh, considered lowly. And um, uh, we've also had the civil rights movement, which culminated in riots all over the country during the 60s, late 60s and early 70s. Mm -hmm. And we had an incorporation process, you know, a racial incorporation process led by both Republicans and Democrats, you know, as well as the, uh, the academic uh, leaders as well as the uh, corporate leaders and others as well as the uh, you know the, the, the state and local governments and that kind of thing and this incorporation process uh, led by uh, affirmative action as a policy which is really like the second reconstruction in, in this country because uh, at that time the system was so very segregated you see mm -hmm. so segregated uh, palpable and today we've made tremendous progress through this incorporation process, you see. Mm -hmm. And so many black people uh, made their way into settings that um, had always been uh, white, so to speak. And as they, as they did so, many, many white people welcomed them, you know. And, but many others, many others, many other white people felt that their own rights were abrogated by the inclusion of these black people. And so they resisted. And while that number was relatively small at the times, uh, it, it has grown uh, today. It has grown uh, for complicated reasons. Uh, what this means though, uh, is that as black people <clears throat> navigate the white space, and it's important to understand that um, the, the ghetto uh, in the minds of a lot of the white people is a very negative thing, you know. Um, it, it, it's a place where it's like a den of iniquity. It's where crime and violence and all these things that people, uh, that uh, middle-class people, uh, you know, uh, despise or whatever. But uh, a lot of black people in the minds of a lot of white people uh, uh, live there. They live in the iconic ghetto. Right. You see, this 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 ghetto is is no longer simply a physical space. It's become iconic. It becomes a symbol, and it's symbolized, you know, by uh, uh, itself as a as a space. But it's also symbolized by black people. And as black people navigate the white space, you know, they're burdened with a negative presumption that they must disprove before uh, establishing trusting relations with the people uh, of that space. So this is a major challenge for black people who navigate that space. And what so, kind of a be behavioral phenomena does it cause to individuals uh, this burden? Well, the burden, I mean, basically, uh, when they experience uh, rejection, um, you know, and I quickly say that um, not everybody experiences it the same way because there are many, many people who are open to this uh, navigation process, so to speak. And in my day, um, back in when I was in school and college, we were very concerned with white racism, white racism, white racism, you know, 
mm-hmm. the white man, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Today, it's different. I mean, it's not just the the white people who you know can cause you um, a setback or can push you back or undermine you in the white space, but it's anybody else who you know wants to distinguish themselves from the iconic ghetto, including black people themselves. You see. So what we're talking about today is a new kind of symbolic racism, you see, that is peculiarly equal opportunity. In other words, white people can do it, but also black people can do it, other minorities can do it. Uh, In a pluralistic society, people compete for place and position. And so the person who fits well with the iconic ghetto, that is the iconic Negro, this person is the person who is oftentimes undermined, you see. Right. So it's uh, so it's the world against the iconic Negro, basically. Absolutely. And uh, maybe it's a it's a way for some uh, black people to to differentiate themselves from the stereotype. It's a defense mechanism. Yeah. Well, I mean, what black people are trying to do, the ones who are awfully mobile, is to distinguish themselves from the iconic Negro. Mm-hmm. You see. I mean, you go well, when we say more. iconic Negro in the in the mind of. Uh, of uh, people who are in, of black people, we're talking about the street element, basically. Yeah, well, I was going to say that in my book, Code of the Street, you see uh, people um, developing these terms. Uh, again, I quickly say these are not my terms. Yeah, these are the folk concepts of the people themselves, mm-hmm. street and decent. Now, the street element is an element that the decent people want to avoid. They want to distinguish themselves from this street element, you see, within the ghetto itself, you see. They don't want their kids to be involved there. They don't want their kids to be hurt by this person. They don't want their kids associated with this person. This person is a, is, is, is somebody, uh, is treated uh, like an outcast, so to speak. Anybody who looks like that or acts like that is somebody that uh, Black people who see themselves as decent do not want to be associated with, you see. Yeah. If you extrapolate this and talk about the white space, you see, um, whereas the black people can distinguish between who's decent, who's street, that kind of thing, the wider society isn't always capable, you see. Yeah. Uh, they, they basically see black people, you know. And um, today, though, uh, black people uh, don't always live in the ghetto. Some have been in the larger society for three generations. Some mm-hmm. people come from Africa. Some people come from the Caribbean. They never, never had experience with the iconic ghetto. But because of black skin, a lot of people are ready to associate with them, uh, associate them with the iconic ghetto and burden them with uh, a uh, deficit of credibility, you know, that's right. manifested in this uh, burden that uh, black people uh, carry as they navigate the white space. Have you experienced uh, have you experienced this this kind of uh, unconscious, I guess, or conscious? But uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that to a, to a large extent, there are some some quote unquote white people or people in the white space who um, who don't consider themselves racist, and yet they have they they are unconsciously uh, acting as racist uh, because they have uh, preconceived notions. Have you as a as a very well educated, accomplished uh, author and professor, et cetera. Have you uh, uh, dealt with these stereotypes uh, in 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 the post uh, civil rights uh, uh, era of this country? Sure. Every every black person has has experienced uh, a moment of acute disrespect based on his blackness. And as I suggest in my new book, um, this is uh, complicated by uh, the black person, especially the phenotypically black person being associated with the iconic ghetto. So even if you uh, are not from the ghetto, you could be from Africa, you could be from the Caribbean, you could be middle-class for three generations. uh, But as long as you've got black skin, there are people who are ready to associate you with the iconic ghetto and to give you this negative presumption until you can establish yourself as, uh, or, or, or disprove this negative uh, presumption yeah. uh, in order to be treated as worthwhile. And that's a hard thing to do. 
especially um, uh, with people who um, won't be convinced of your legitimacy, who, who treat you uh, with disrespect, weaponize their prejudices to keep you in your place. And oftentimes these people are people with whom uh, you uh, compete uh, in a pluralistic society. Mm -hmm. Our society is pluralistic. So what we're talking about here is many different groups of people uh, competing for place and position, oftentimes on the basis of their particularities, you see. Um, and so people who are in direct competition with these black people can weaponize their prejudices just to keep black people apart or down. And this happens. And I quickly say that there are many, many uh, white people and others who are really receptive to black people navigating the system. But there are also people who feel that their own rights are being abrogated by the inclusion of black people. You mm -hmm. see. It's that sense of uh, entitlement that, uh, that they have because of the fact that they're white or, or because they simply feel that uh, black people are inferior, that's it. Well, well, some people feel that the uh, the nation itself is their nation and not the nation of right. colored minorities. Some black people may tend to overcompensate, I guess, because of this kind of behavior by their surroundings. Yes, yes, yes. And what does that uh, does that lead to? Any uh, like psychologically, what's the what's the state of a of a black person who lives in the in a relatively uh, antagonistic white environment? Well, I mean, as I uh, mentioned at the very beginning of this uh, podcast, uh, um, the ethnographer assumes that people, you know, go about meeting the demands of everyday life, the little problems and things like that, and they adjust and deal with them, you know. And when they uh, develop solutions or understandings, they share these understandings with people they love and care about, part of their community, their children, their family, their friends, their loved ones, you know. And, and um, you know, these understandings uh, represent the local knowledge of the community, the things that the local community assumes. And the ethnographer's uh, challenge is to apprehend, to comprehend, and understand this local knowledge and represent this represent this local knowledge in his or her work. And this is what I've tried to do in my work. You say, this is what I do in black and white space. Yes. It isn't a pretty picture, but it's uh, it's the truth as far as I can understand it, you see. So through your work, what have you discovered and through your own experience, of course, uh, in terms of what uh, actual problems does it create to uh, the average individual, uh, both psychologically and you know their physical health? Uh, the fact that there is this pressure uh, from their from their uh, white uh, yeah. surroundings. Well, what we're really talking about here is the um, American color line. You see, uh, in the old days of um, W. B. Du Bois or Booker T. Washington, uh, back mm -hmm. uh, during that time, the color line was bold. It was clear. You know, yeah. whites on one side, blacks on the other. But since uh, that day, we've had tremendous um, progress. We've made tremendous progress on race in this country, you know, yes. uh, so much so that that color line has become blurred, you see. Yes. And so um, uh, while there are many uh, people, blacks and whites, who try to ignore the color line, there are people who are deeply interested in the color line. And these are people who are ethnocentric or racist or whatever it is, people who weaponize their prejudices against black people, you know, mm -hmm. and they um, tend to draw the color line itself, you see. Yeah. And when you step on the color line, it's like a third rail. It's like you become electrocuted, you see. And as a black person or a white person, when you cross that line, you see, but especially black people. And so this is there. And this is what my book is really about, it's about that third rail, it's about that color line, you see. Now, black people call this the nigger moment, you see, <laughs> the nigger moment. And, and, and the nigger moment is what, is what happens when you touch that third rail, a moment of acute disrespect 
based on your blackness. And these moments can be small or they can be big. Some people have characterized these as uh, microaggressions or whatever. I don't like the term because there's nothing about this <clears throat> nigger moment that is micro. This is a very powerful demonstration of the color line, the demarcation between the races you see yeah. in, our, in our society that is uncovered by simply touching it or crossing it by a black person. And the, the result is this moment of acute disrespect based on one's blackness, you see. Mm -hmm. And every black person knows this. Every black person just about has experienced this moment of acute disrespect based on his blackness, you see. Yeah. And in, the, uh, in answer to this, to go back to my point about, you know, the local knowledge, uh, they try to teach their children about this and to teach them to avoid this nigger moment, you see. And um, that's part of the talk that parents give to their children about the, uh, the white or white society, the police, the work uh, environment, uh, life. So uh, yes, black people run into this problem and they try to deal with it, uh, but they understand that this is the black tax. This is the black tax, the tax that you're required to pay by being a black person in America. Uh, in most of your stories uh, of street-oriented families and even many decent families where the people are trying to be more, etc., uh, the absence of fathers is prevalent in uh, in the ghetto, of course. In in, uh, in the stories that you're describing, the generating in the code of the street. Um, would you happen to know what is the percentage of uh, single mother households in the United States and how that compares to single moms in African-American households versus, uh, versus very poor African-American households? Yeah, well, I would, I would say that uh, people uh, try to get this number all the time, but it's terribly difficult to get in an accurate way. Uh -huh. So I would not venture to say, um, uh, I would not venture to say the uh, family situation of Americans, white or black, is very complicated, you know, wow. very complicated. And so we don't know how many are this way, how many are that way. We can say we do, but we don't. I see. Um, what structural damage does uh, the absence of fathers cause to the African-American community as a whole? Is there a point where the, what, uh, I'm asking what structural damage does- uh, Just one second. This, my wife is calling me, just one second. I'm sorry, yeah. One second, sorry. So what I was asking was, uh, what structural damage does the absence of fathers cause to the African-American community as a whole? Is there a point where, because my understanding is that the, the percentage of uh, uh, single family, uh, sorry, single uh, parent uh, households in low-income African-American communities is much higher than the average, uh, you know, uh, than the general average. Um, maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, but that's what I hear. I mean, that's what uh, a lot of people uh, have, have mentioned, that uh, yeah. the absence of fathers is actually a poison for uh, Black communities. Um, absence because they decide to leave or, or they're incarcerated or, or they, they just they get, get killed or they, who knows what, they just die from natural causes. Yeah. Uh, is, is, is there a point uh, where the damage to, this to the communities will be too hard to repair, meaning that the damage that, you know, lack of fatherhood, uh, the father figure uh, will be just so hard to repair that there's no turning back. Yeah, well, I, as I said before, this is hard to know. I mean, the exact number. Uh, we can assume that uh, because of the, the, uh, the social and economic conditions, we can assume that because of the um, virulent racism in the society. We can assume that um, the way the criminal justice system is, um, is so arbitrary with respect to black people. We can uh -huh. assume that because of the racial disparities in healthcare and housing and employment, all these issues are so complicated for black people. We can see the diminution of the 
situation of black people and black men in particular to such an extent that uh, families uh, don't get formed in a traditional way. And, uh, and yet babies continue to come, you see. And this is not peculiar to black people, though black people have a certain challenge uh, that is racially determined in this uh, kind of society. But we have to understand that given the social changes in terms of the movement from manufacturing to service and high technology in the context of an increasingly global economy, that this is not just um, uh, racial, uh, race specific, that these problems are not just race specific, that mm -hmm. other people run into these issues too, including white working class and poor people, uh, you know, Latinos, um, poor people. Uh, you can imagine other ethnic groups, immigrant groups who have these issues. Um, the thing that, that uh, distinguishes black people though, is uh, the fact that black people are conspicuous and observable and easily made eligible for discrimination. Right. And so you can imagine that this is a big, big, big issue for black people. So again, uh, we don't know how many, uh, and people will venture a guess, but I, will, I don't wanna guess, but I just know that the factors are there for undermining the stability of black families. And to the extent that you have these instability, we have problems, you see. Yeah. Um, when I was in college, there was a, a friend of mine who uh, was uh, dressing in uh, uh, hip hop outfits and whatnot. And he expressed several times, man, I wish I was black. I wish I was black. And um, I, that, was, that was a while back. That was uh, 20, 22 years ago. And I had just come from Greece. And uh, because of the fact that, I mean, in Greece, we're really, you know, not, there's, there's not, there is really not, there isn't much racism, I guess, at least I'm, I'm not racist, but the thing is that like, I'm aware of the, the, how hard it is to be black. So I wondered at that point, I said, um, why would this guy, isn't, isn't he privileged <laughs> being white? You know, isn't it a privilege in this society to be white? And yet, uh, he expressed the notion of uh, that a lot of people, a lot of young people expressed, and you see them that they actually, uh, especially suburban, uh, I went to school upstate in New York, and there are a lot of suburban towns there, and um, especially kids, white kids from the suburbs, they lack character, they lack uh, any identity, a lot of them, and they see the black culture as a very strong, powerful culture, and it's absolutely true, in my view. Um, but the way that they uh, express that, uh, I guess, uh, idea of fraternity is through, through certain clothes, which uh, then later on they move away from because they, they are associated with uh, the street culture. Do you feel that this uh, kind of, uh, that there's an interesting kind of uh, contradiction there in terms of the messages that are communicated to the younger people? But on the one hand, you know, what they see is that there's a very powerful, strong culture, uh, where at the same time, you know, they're invited kind of to eventually dislike, hate, or stay, simply stay away from that culture. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, um, black people are victimized by uh, historical uh, stigma, you know, going back to slavery. Slavery was the original sin. And, um, you know, the positionality uh, that was established under slavery, white over black, persists to this day. And younger people don't know always uh, the full implications of this kind of uh, issue. And so there are many, many black people who do things and say things and behave and, and become stars. Um, and there are a lot of white people who, who like them and support them, of course. And um, the teenagers sometimes, um, you know, buy into the, um, you know, the desirable attributes of such people. Um, uh, and in time, these attributes become undesired. In other words, they're uh, desirable but undesired attributes. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of young people, uh, you know, young white people buy into this to some extent. 
And you see this with rap music, you see this with, uh, you know, certain stars and that kind of thing, Michael Jackson and other things. Um, but there comes a time when, you know, people come to their senses or come to an understanding that basically the black people are subjugated by the wider system, you see. And it's complicated because not every black person, you know, uh, is in that situation. And we've made great progress over the years. As I say, uh, the incorporation process of the 1960s and 70s was very important. And it has now resulted in the largest black middle class in American history. <laughs> but that stands alongside the iconic ghetto. And so these people who have black phenotype are oftentimes associated with that iconic ghetto as they move about in white spaces and um, burdened with this deficit of credibility compared to their white counterparts for that reason. It feels like uh, <clears throat> the same people who used to who glorify um, uh, the you know the famous athletes, uh, black athletes. Maybe these are the ones that get most of the exposure, uh, or artists and whatnot are the ones who eventually shoot black people uh, because of the fact that they uh, look a certain way. I don't know. Maybe it's me, but uh, the the um, What's been happening in the, the, in the last uh, few years uh, kind of demonstrates that, I think. Um, there, about uh, the, the code of the street, uh, there's, um, there's a segment where you mentioned that some street-oriented women uh, often see young children as trophies and uh, they use them to get some kind of respect that uh, they never had from the community. So they dress them up like dolls, they buy expensive strollers and clothes, uh, they parade them around, et cetera. Um, in fact, one of the grandmothers in the story, in the book, mentions that these young women will spend more clothing, uh, more money to, to clothe the baby than to feed the baby. Uh, it's also, you're also mentioning that some women see their pregnancies as a way to, for them to, to keep a man and perhaps be supported by a man. Uh, this is pretty uh, disturbing, considering the fact that we're talking about little human beings and uh, consider how much potential these children have to develop into something constructive for the community and the world. Um, and yet in this case, they're used as pawns as soon as they're born. Do you feel that this is exclusive to the black community or is it kind of like a phenomenon that you, you find in other communities as well? Um, and when did this trend begin to explode, I guess, uh, in the black community? What is it that prompts these women to act so callously with uh, their own children? These are a lot of questions, I guess. Yeah, well, it's a very uh, complicated uh, issue for sure, you know, and um, you look at the, um, the issue of, um, opportunities uh, in the uh, system itself or realizing yourself as a full person and how these are truncated with respect to uh, black people. Um, and you see uh, young women uh, making do with whatever way they can to gain legitimacy or praise or what have you. Uh, families or, or uh, babies might be part of this in some way. It's hard to say how many or how often this occurs, but uh, the stories there give you a qualitative uh, picture or understanding of just how significant this can be for some people, if, if you will. It's hard to generalize. It really is hard to generalize and what you can do with, a, with an ethnographic uh, interview or story is represent that account. And this is what, this is what I've done here, you see. Mm -hmm. um, um, clearly, uh, this is not you know, general to all black people, you know, but uh, black people caught up at ground zero in the economy. You, you can yeah. imagine certain areas where there's simply little opportunity. People can take what they can get and make do with what they can. And this happens, this happens. Yeah. And, and, and I would say it's not peculiar to black people. It, it's a class issue, not just a race issue, you see. Yeah. And the, 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 I, I think one of the most important, uh, one of the most important uh, messages of black and white space, and this um, deals with the plight of black 
people in America mm-hmm. is, um, you know, this, this notion that as black people navigate uh, white spaces, they're burdened with this negative presumption that they must disprove in order to establish trusting relations with others. And this situation manifests in a uh, deficit of credibility compared to their white counterparts. And it's so very important for understanding the situation of black people because this has implications for various racial disparities, including uh, health, residence, employment, contact with the police, and the general sense of well-being that black people can face or feel in American society. So this principle is very important, you see. This is one of the major findings of my book, Black and White Space. Mm-hmm. So Professor, what's, uh, what's next for you? After all these books and after all these years of teaching, close to 50 years now? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to, uh, to work on, on issues. I'm working on a, a, a book now on a man who I got to know in my field work. Uh, I call him Red. Um, and this is a man who, um, who lives in Philadelphia. And uh, I'm getting into his life and his story, uh, his life history. Um, and that's one of the projects I'm, I'm working on. I'm also working on um, uh, the cafe life of uh, Paris, looking at the relationship between the banlieue and the and the city itself. So I'm doing that with a French colleague. And uh, I'm also working on um, uh, the um, uh, young man I, I interviewed for uh, the book Black and White Space, one of my former mentees who um, came from the ghetto, the inner city ghetto, and is now doing uh, very well financially. He's a multimillionaire now and uh, he was a mentee of mine i met him when he was about 16 years old and um, uh, with uh, other young men i mentored him and i would pull them and uh, have them gather with me at pen i'd buy them pizzas and dictionaries mm-hmm. and i would have uh, successful black men come by and eat with them and talk about their own stories with them to try to give them um, not only hope, but a perspective about how they were behaving as young people and how that behavior and what they were able to accomplish has implications and consequences for how they can live later. That was a major theme of this uh, mentoring process that I engaged in with these young black men from the ghetto. And some of them have done pretty well. And this young man that I'm, uh, interviewing and studying uh, at the present time um, is a great example of, uh, of of this, and so I'm I'm working on his story as well. So these are things that I'm doing right now. Out of curiosity, have you kept uh, in touch with any of the characters in the book Code of the Street? Uh, some, some over the years, I I, I keep in touch uh, with some and uh, learn about how they're doing and what they're doing and. So where, of, where are they today? I'm curious. Well, I mean, there are people who obviously have passed on because of uh, you know, the situation they deal with, age, um, sometimes COVID, you know, um, but um, uh, many of them are, you know, pretty much uh, where they were. Uh, young people have moved on. Some people are successful. Some people have fallen by the wayside, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in general, um, um, I, um, I, I enjoy keeping up with uh, people I've, I've met in, in, in life, you know. Did the vet manage to become a doctor? No, she did not. No, she did not. No. Uh, I won't go into her story, but no, she did not. I see. Uh, yeah. um, so I guess you use the, uh, the actual names of the, of the characters? No, these are, these are disguised. Um, okay. 
Yeah, one or two are, are, are authentic uh, names. Uh, they wanted to use their names. And um, uh, Rob was one of the ones who wanted me to use his name. And uh, Herman Rice, a good friend of mine, um, uh, worked with me on this. He passed away a number of years ago, but he and I mentored Rob. Uh, Rob uh, had been a uh, part of the drug gang. Um, and uh, he moved out of that into a straight life uh, after prison and after um, so much violence. Um, he's become uh, an entrepreneur. Really? I keep in touch with him now and then. So since the beginning of your career, things have changed quite a bit. I'm curious, what was your image of yourself uh, in the 70s when you were starting? Uh, as far as your place in the world and your place within the black community and your signif the significance of your life, your contribution to the black community. And how has that transformed over the years? Well, as you, as you uh, may know from reading the book, I mean, I was born on what used to be a plantation in the South. Uh -huh. my, my grandmother was the midwife when I was born. And um, she was a kind of village doctor, not educated, but a person who had herbical cures for this and that and whatever. She was a midwife from the village I lived in, uh, in the South. Uh, at the age of two, uh, my folks uh, moved North. My father had fought in World War II. He'd been to uh, England. He'd been to France. And when he returned to the South, he couldn't, couldn't live there anymore. He wanted to uh, live in the North in part because uh, he couldn't face the racism of the South after uh, being, a, being a soldier and getting the respect that, that people give to soldiers in places like France and in England. And he just basically did not want to live uh, in the South anymore. And I was two and my mother and my father left and went to South of Indiana. He got a job as a factory worker he had a fourth grade education. My mother worked as a domestic. I grew up on the streets of South Bend. Uh, I was a precocious uh, uh, student. Um, I read. It's a, it's a college town, so I guess it's, it's a good influence. Yeah, but Notre Dame is there. Right. And right. other universities there. And at that point in time, I, I was a kid of the, I mean, I, I was precocious and I was. I read early, and um, but I became a kid of the streets and eventually broke out of that and began to get serious about school. And just about that time, um, uh, opportunities were opening up for Black people. And I went to Indiana University in Bloomington and graduated from there and then went on to the University of Chicago, where I met professors who encouraged me in sociology. And I wrote my first book, Placed on the Corner, a study of Black Street Corner Men. And this uh, publication, um, this work led to other, other publications and other uh, field work. Uh, and I cut my teeth, my sociological teeth, at the University of Chicago, working with people like Gerald Suttles, urban ethnographer, and uh, Howard Becker, uh, urban ethnographer, part of the old Chicago school. And from there, I went to Swarthmore to teach. And then from uh, Swarthmore, I was recruited by Penn. And I worked at Penn for 32 years before coming to Yale uh, in 2007. And I've continued my work since coming to Yale uh, with uh, two books, uh, The Cosmopolitan Canopy and uh, Black and White Space, plus many other articles and edited volumes that I've been able to do while being at Yale. So, I mean, I, I have kind of moved from the uh, symbolic bottom of the system uh, to the symbolic uh, top of it. And uh, my understanding of race and issues that you and I are talking about really kind of comes from that experience, comes from that um, um, trek. So basically, um, I represent what I've come to know and uh, what I have written about in this book, Black and White Space, is based on an understanding that I've been able to 
uh, obtain from living the life, living through this period. <laughs>